I think of how there are so many confusing things that are out in our world that's trying to govern the way we're to live. They say, do it this way, or do it that way, or next week it'll be, don't do it that way, and let's do it this way, and everything changes all around us. Uh, I'm glad God's Word isn't like that. It just says it, it tells us what to do and how to live. Years and years ago, I bought, I bought my first car. It was a used car that actually had statements on the dashboard that told you if something was wrong. Most of them, you know, those older ones, we'd have a little red light and you had to guess. Something must be wrong. But uh, I had bought a car. I had to drive it. Uh, it, was a, it was a Chevy Impala, one of those great big ones from the late 70s, early 80s. Um, and I was driving it home from where I bought it. It was a 20-mile drive. And I had just gotten on the highway there. was going about five, maybe six or seven miles down the road. And a little yellow light popped up on the dashboard which wasn't there when I was testing it, but suddenly it's there, and it said, check engine. I had never seen that light in my life. And I said, what is that? What did I just buy? It says, check engine. So you know what I did? I pulled out the road, and I checked it. It was there. And I said, I don't know what that means, but it was in there. I thought so. It was there. It turns out, the car started to do this thing as you go down the road and, and shudder and stuff like that. It was a little pollution control device. It was a little, probably cost a dollar fifty to get the part and hook it onto a hose and everything was fine after that. But you know those little yellow lights can scare you to death. When we go through 1 Corinthians 12, there are going to be some very challenging things in this chapter. If you liken it to a flashing light on the dashboard of the church, <laughs> there are going to be lights flashing. All right? Let's not take black tape and stick over it so we don't see it. <laughs> None of you do that, do you? All right? When we see something that the Lord says, don't do that, let's be very quick to respond to that. If the Lord is encouraging us to keep going on something, and we feel like, boy, I'm getting tired of that one. Keep going on it. Let's read this chapter with open hearts, ready to learn, ready to be adjusted by the Holy Spirit to be what we're called to be. Because everything he does is good, isn't it? Do we trust him? We've already sang, heard the choir sing. This is a word that stands sure. It's solid. So we can trust it. And that's what we're going to do today. First Corinthians 12, first four verses. We started this last time. We kind of dealt with the stuffing. Verse 2 and 3 last time uh, we were here. That was two weeks ago. Now we're going to deal with verse 1 and 4 on the other sides of it. Um, so let's have a word of prayer first. Heavenly Father, Please help us today. We know that that's the intent of your heart, to make us like your son. And that's just not as an individual, but even as a church. We are the bride of Christ. And someday we'll stand before you, presented by our Savior, to be holy and blameless without any spot, wrinkle, or any such thing. That's an incredible prospect. And we know it's true. It's going to happen. In the meantime, we're in the process. We're learning as we go. 
May we be sensitive to the Spirit's leading. May we understand these words and take them to heart and to follow through and to realize, Lord, that so many times the challenges, it's not an understanding, it's in the doing. And that's where we stand today. Lord, not only convince our hearts of the things we hear, but also work in our wills to do them, that we might bring honor and glory to your name, that there, here, people will see that there's a church that loves God dearly and seeks to follow after the Savior with all our heart. And I pray that testimony becomes very evident that every one of us are on that path. As we do it together, Lord, encourage us today with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties, I'm going a little further. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. We're going to spend, especially the last part of our message in verse number four specifically. And I want to have a full running head start on this one. All right? I think it's important uh, if, well, you don't have a choice, but sometimes I restate a few things that we were talking about two weeks ago. And it's not because I think that you're, you're forgetful people. And it's not because I'm looking for sermon filler. It's because... Context is so vital. With everything we learn, we have to keep it in its place. And these are easy verses to pull out of context and walk around and use them for whatever we want. And so I, I make that as my ambition every single time to set forth the best we can of the context so we know what we're looking at. That's our foundation for the thoughts of verse 4. And when we started in on this, verse 1 to three, and four, we, we kind of dealt with that, what I called an awkwardness of verse two and three in the nature of the context as to what is Paul doing here. That seems to be the flow because he starts in verse one, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. And then in verse four, now there are varieties of gifts. And it seems natural that that is the context. I think it is all the way through the chapter. But right in the middle of that, we have these couple of strange little verses about nobody could say Jesus is accursed except this and that and all these other things. And, and it's like, okay. Well, we were dealing with that last time. But I just want to set something before you before. that I think it's good for this reminder every single week we go to it. The people who first received this letter, the Corinthian church, were believers in Jesus Christ. (laughs) I'm going to keep saying that to you. 
Because as we get deeper into the passage, we're going to say, they can't possibly be believers. <laughs> what are they doing? That doesn't look right at all. And we just need to remember, this is a church that belongs to Christ. These people are saints, chapter 1 calls themselves, in Jesus Christ. However, it was their world, their culture, the flesh, and sinfulness that influenced their behavior. And that church was aggressive in competitive ways, in combative ways. They were great at division. If that was a spiritual gift, they hit the top. Division was easy for them. They elevated themselves in pride. They pushed everybody else down because they didn't measure up in their own mind. They had racists, it seems, to prominence. They considered strength and eloquence. They considered even appearance to be signs of superiority. They even measured Paul that way. Go through 2 Corinthians sometimes and hear his words, how they treated him. But Paul here calls them children. They are immature. They're immature. And as he's working through this, this picture for them. He goes to something so simple, and I'm not going to go through all the parts and pieces. You could pull this up on the internet and listen to the sermon two weeks ago. But the simple take of verse 2 and 3 is that they are being led in spiritual things by the wrong source. All right? Spiritual things are the department of the Holy Spirit. That's His work. That's what he does. And to do spiritual things without him leads to failure every time. I guarantee it. It won't work. The key to the passage, as you see, especially in verse 3, is by the Spirit. By the Spirit. By the Spirit. He keeps bringing up that simple point, and you're going to see it all the way through the chapter. That's the means in which we are able to see something happen. Right? Just a simple word. By is, he's the cause of what is going to happen. And in this context of what they can say and even what they can't say, that gets pretty down to the lowest levels as to what his control looks like. And if he's going to talk to them about spiritual gifts, they have to understand the core issue of it. Spiritual things. He starts to address in verse 1. Now, our text says spiritual gifts. It's just a neuter, just, as a matter of fact, the word gifts aren't even there. It's just spiritual, right? In the Greek text, it's spiritual things. Um, that's anything from the gift to the result, the ministry, the attitude, the words, the unity, the maturity, the function, the work of the Holy Spirit, and the work of the spiritual man himself. All of those are under that department of spiritual things. They're all operating together. They're supposed to line up together and work together like an efficient church body ought to. And then you take that whole picture and put an immature man in the middle of it. You may say, well, that's not very significant. Oh, it is significant. 
Because if everything else is operating according to plan and immaturity steps in there, you have inefficiency suddenly as the main issue. Something is not right. Even if it's a $1.50 part, it's not right and the car is going to jiggle and the lights are going to come on. We sometimes say, but we're trying to avoid all the big problems. Well, good. Let's avoid all the big problems too, okay? But let's also look for all those parts because we're talking about a spiritual thing here, something incredible. And Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of these things, first one. I don't want you to be unaware of these things. It's not that they didn't know the truth. They chose to ignore it. Did they see the flashing light on the dashboard? Yes. How did they solve it? The black tape. Cover it up. And that's how they went on with it. They ignored the truth. That's the word ignorant, by the way. He says, unaware. I don't want you to be that way. I don't want you to be ignorant because you know the truth, but you're willfully ignoring it. Does God notice? Oh, yes, he does. This is our Corinthian church. This is who we're studying from. This is the example. And in a way, you can almost say it this way. They're going to teach us how not to do it. All right? Their example, unfortunately, just comes over and over and over and over as what I call a dysfunctional church. Let me give you just a couple of pictures. I'm just setting this up so you can get the the full picture today. You have, um, let's try a football team for a minute. All right? Most of you watch it, especially if you're Super Bowl kind of followers, as our youth group will be. Eleven guys are supposed to be out on the field with your team in a given play, right? Eleven? Okay. Twelve, they blow a whistle. They say, you can't do that. All right? You send out your eleven guys. Now, here's the picture. You send out eleven guys in order to... to uh, Play this round, this game, this down, if you want to call it that. Ten of them are set. Ten of them are focused. Ten of them are ready for the next play. And one guy isn't. And you say, well, it's still a pretty good percentage. But what difference could one man make on that field at that moment? He's not focused. He leaves a hole right there in the team. It might not seem significant to some, but you could lose the game over that one play. Can't you? They're not all focused. There was a great, I mean, this is true. You probably could pull it up on YouTube, too. Starlin Castro, baseball player, shortstop, Chicago Cubs, years ago. He, he had a problem with being distracted. As a shortstop. This has literally happened. One day, the pitcher pitches the ball and hits it. He's not even looking toward home plate. He's standing backwards looking out into the the outfield. We laughed and laughed and laughed about that. He was completely backwards. When the rest of the team was ready to go, he's backwards, just looking out in the outfield, just kind of looking around. Boom! The ball's hit behind him. Isn't that great? You love that story? How often does that say, we say, but it was one guy. You can illustrate this a lot of different ways. Here's another one. You're on a, a canoe that happens to hold 11 people. 
right? Big one. You're all out there, large enough for 11 people on there. Ten of them are paddling the same direction. One of them is sitting opposite, paddling the other direction. Is that pretty efficient? You say, oh, we could overpower them. But why? Why do we go through all the extra effort? Why don't we just say, hey, guy, turn around. <laughs> but so often, we, we just assume, well, they're figured out. It's okay. It's not really affecting us. Yeah, I think it would be. One person pulling the other direction than what we're supposed to go. All of that is called inefficiency. In a sense, if you pull up the word inefficient, you'll find the words counterproductive. You'll find the words incapable. That means it's not able, right? Uh, incompetent, futile, pointless, unprofitable, unsuccessful, and worthless. That's inefficient. So I said, well, is that anything like dysfunctional? Well, dysfunctional means you're just operating not as normal. Not as proper. You're abnormal when you use the word dysfunctional. It's abnormal. The point of all this is that a spiritual organism, which is the church, it's not a business. It's a body. Belongs to Christ. This spiritual organism must operate by spiritual means. By the Holy Spirit. If you go and pour diesel fuel in your gasoline gas tank this afternoon, do you know what you get? A 4,000 pound paperweight. Because it's not going to be any good to you after that, is it? That's a mess. How many times... Does the church err in this, in our society, in our times, where they try to operate a spiritual organism by physical means, by social means, by economic means, by business means? They take what the world has to offer and they give it priority to tell us how we're supposed to live. Matter of fact, they emphasize more of the flesh than anything else. And not all flesh is sinful necessarily, but if it's man-centered and it's running God's program, do you see the problems? They come very quickly. That's the Corinthian church. This is nothing new. It's been happening for 2,000 years. That's when this was written, about 2,000 years ago. And we still haven't learned it. I say we as general, as Christians as a whole. We still haven't learned this. We still got to go to the passage and say, now how do we run a church? How do we do it? Maybe we're changed that. Maybe we're changed that for our next generation. They'll say, oh, I know how it works. I've seen that in action. I saw it down at Hillsdale one time. Wouldn't that be nice to hear? We're addressing spiritual things. Spiritual things. We have to move our minds off of ourselves and onto the Holy Spirit and onto His work. Paul says, you guys used to follow idols. There were dumb idols. I love that King James word. They were dumb idols. <laughs> they were a rock. They were a chunk of wood. They were a piece of steel or gold or, or metal of some kind. And you walked according to their dictates. Those things don't even have brains. 
What's that say of you? Oh, he didn't say that, did he? What's that say of you? You're following something that doesn't even breathe. It doesn't even think. It doesn't even talk. It can't hear you. But you're going to follow it? Wow. Wow. He says, that's the way you were when you were pagans. And that's a cool word because when you say it's what you were, that means you've changed. That's not you anymore. So don't practice that. Don't live that way. Don't go through life thinking that, well, you know, the Holy Spirit and all that. He's kind of like the assistant God, isn't he? He's, he's not, well, you're going to find out something new about him here today if that's what you're thinking. This is God himself in this text. God himself has moved inside of you as a believer. That ought to scare you pretty good, if nothing else. He's in there right now. He tells you how he works. He tells you that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said, this is, this is how it works. I'm the agent by which you're saved. I'm the agent by which you live. I am the one who's changing you, and I will make you like Christ. That's who's inside of you. And as a church, it's all represented in front of us. It's beautiful. In other words, there's hope, folks, for all of us, isn't there? Because of the Holy Spirit within us. Somebody had said years ago, and it's a thought in my head now, a statement, that wherever the Spirit is at work, change is inevitable. He doesn't leave you where you're at. Every day he's shaping you to be more and more and more like Christ. That's his job. He's here to mature us to the image of Christ. He's our teacher. He's our guide. He's our comforter. He's our helper. He helps us understand spiritual things, whereas before we had no clue what that meant. And now suddenly it starts to be understood. If you can't be saved without him, you certainly cannot be living a Christian life without him. That's the whole point. You can't do church without Him. Because either we're walking by the Spirit or we're still walking by the flesh. That's just not individual life. That's church life too. So, that's the pulse that you're dealing with here. And Paul says, okay, we're going to talk about spiritual things. But you have to understand, when you're talking about spiritual things, you have to talk about the Holy Spirit. Because you can't have spiritual things apart from Him. So let's not be willfully ignorant in this department. Let's not walk through it and say, okay, I'll tolerate what you're saying, but it's not going to change me. Don't do that. Don't do that. The reality is the Holy Spirit is greater than you. Do you know that? He's God and you're not. Guess who wins? He does. He does. So if we're going to talk about spiritual things, let's talk about the influence of the Holy Spirit. And don't deceive ourselves. The church does not function by the power of man, the wisdom of man, the will of man. It does not. It functions by the power of God, the wisdom of God, and the will of God. And we want to be in line with that. We want to walk that way so that we are a mature congregation, a maturing congregation in all that. Now, how does he explain it? He says, this is simple, folks. This is how the church is built. This is how it's built. Verse 4. 
There are varieties of gift, but the same Spirit. Verse 5, there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. Verse 6, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. At verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Boy, is that going to be a sermon. Verse 7. Okay, back to verse 4 through 6. Picture this in your mind, two columns. Some of you take notes, it's easier to picture than if you write it down. Two columns, left side, right side, all right? When, when, you, when you look at these verses, you can see there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of ministry. So on the left side, you've got varieties of gifts. Second item on that left side, varieties of ministry. Third item on that left side, varieties of effects. On the right side, right across, number one on the left, one on the right, the same spirit. Second item, the same Lord. The third item, the same God. These are not contrasting each other. All right? He's not talking about a contrast between them. It's not choose one side or choose the other. He's showing on the left side the working parts of the church. These are the things that the church does that needs. This is how it functions. That's on the left column. Varieties of gifts, varieties of ministry, varieties of effects. Those are true to the working parts of the church. On the right side is the one who created them. The one who activates them. The one who oversees them. The one who strengthens them and guides them and leads them and matures them and shapes them. You get the picture? So, there's a working part. Column one. There is the worker part. That's speaking of our God. Column two. Usually, when we're walking through this, and this is what I see more times than not, books being written on spiritual gifts and all these things, Geshua's side gets the most focus. The gift side. The working part side. That's what they write their books about. That's where you take those. Have you ever had that spiritual test? Spiritual gift test? You're circling all these little things and then they add it all up and they tell you your score and say, Oh, you have a great gift! And then they tell you what your spiritual gift is. All right? You ever take one of those? Kind of interesting. We took one years ago when I was working with the Indiana Bible Church Mission on pastoral temperament. I thought, well, that'd be interesting. So all us missionary pastors were there filling out all these forms, and we're jotting them down and adding up numbers and everything else. And when it got to the end, you take your score and you go and look on this chart to see what it was. And mine said I was an extreme dictator. And I said, what? <laughs> that stunned me. 
So I went to my friend Henry. He was a, he's the director of the mission. I said, Henry, this can't be. It says I'm an extreme dictator. He says, well, you need to be. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, you're working in a church rescue work. And when you're in there, you've got to do everything. You've got to tell them what to do and what not to do. And, all. and he says, be a dictator. I said, okay. Well, that stung me. Maybe if you ever took those spiritual gift tests, you'd be stunned too. You'd say, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. Anyway, for all that's to say is that we put so much emphasis on trying to figure out where's my part, what's my part, who's my part, what do I do, what do I do? We go down column one and we thoroughly investigate it and study it and read our books and learn and learn and learn and learn. And column two doesn't get much attention. Today, I flip it around. Column two gets the first point, all right, because that's the context anyway. You could start talking about spiritual gifts as much as you want. Put them in the front, whatever you want to do. But don't ever put the Holy Spirit in the back. Sometimes we get into gifts and we look at them in a prideful way, a competitive way, something according to rank, a perception of importance. And when you start that, you're a Corinthian. All right? Paul actually had to address this because that's what they were doing. They were giving emphasis on the gifts and not on the giver of the gifts. So, if he's the one who started all this, don't we need to know that? The Holy Spirit has that much already invested in this church. Don't we need to know that? If we wanted to talk about creation, creation of the world, we'd say, okay, let's go to Genesis chapter 1. And we start talking about, you know, the sun and, and darkness and light and, and animals. And we start putting all the pictures in about how that happened. But God created this world. In the beginning, God. That's true of the church, too. That's where it starts. It doesn't start with us. It wasn't our idea. It wasn't something that some clever guy came up with one day and says, I know, Church. And everyone said, what's that? Oh, wait till you see it. We're going to control the world with this thing. We're going to make a church. In Acts chapter 1, there was no church. Do you know that? When you're reading through the books of the New Testament, you get to the book of Acts, you're right there in chapter 1, you start reading it, you say, oh, this is about it. There wasn't a church. It didn't exist. On this earth, there wasn't anything. Everything in operation as of chapter number one of the book of Acts is still Old Testament economy. I want you to think with me for a little bit. I confess right up, I'm a dispensationalist, okay? In saying that, that's not a disease and you don't need a mask. All right? What that is, is I believe God operates in different ways, in different groups, at different times, and yet all of it was for his glory. And when it's all done, we're going to be amazed at how, how our God can orchestrate all this stuff. And it all comes out to the exact point of what he wanted it to be. So, when I talk about this, I talk about the fact that Adam and Eve, before the fall, were living in a different time than after the fall. Weren't they? Yes, they were. Because before, they didn't have any trouble with sin. After... Oh, yes, they did. It changed things for them. 
was a different picture. A different picture was before the, the folks before the flood and the folks after the flood. That's a change, too, of a dispensation. There was a difference between before Abraham and after Abraham. And the patriarchs and all these add into it. And those were before Moses came along with the law in his hand. And then you come back to the vast majority of the Old Testament is under the law. Under the structure of the, the Ten Commandments and the laws of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If you're reading through scripture, you're there right now. Right? Pray for one another. It's a tough section to read. But that was the law and that's the way it operated all the way through the rest of the Old Testament and into the Gospels and into the life of Christ and through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. The church wasn't there till Acts 2. And so here's what I see happening as you put the picture. God created a new dispensation. Something never known before. He called it a mystery. It's the church. The church is not Israel. It's not. They're different. They're completely different. The church is not an Old Testament believer. Old Testament believers are saved through faith in Christ. I don't doubt that at all. They're going to be in glory and you're going to love seeing Moses and all these other guys. I know. But that's not the church. They're not part of the body of Christ. Sometimes it takes a minute to wrap your brains around that. (laughs) The church is the body and bride of Christ. And that came in Acts chapter 2. There's a distinction between believers. There's also a, a tribulational believer. That's different than you and me. There's a millennial believer. That's different from you and me. A lot to that. We don't have time. But when you start reading Acts chapter 2, and you start to see what's happening there, they're gathered together in an upper room, and they're praying, because Christ told them to pray, remember? They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. They didn't know what that would be. And suddenly there's this rumbling sound. And this wind is going through. And these tongues of fire are falling upon them. And they start to speak in languages they didn't even know. But they were speaking the gospel. And it just so happens. I love saying it that way because it's not really true. God designed this. But that was the day of Pentecost. All the Jews had to be there because God commanded them three times a year to come to Jerusalem to worship before him. And that was one of those holidays. And so you got Jews from all these other countries, Jews that spoke all these different languages, and they're all there in Jerusalem doing what they're supposed to do. They came to worship God. And God uses his 11 disciples, 12 at this point, 12 of them, And he's using them, speaking through them in languages that that man heard, and that man heard, and that man heard, and that man heard. They'd never heard the gospel before. God did a miracle. Amazing. The results were 6,000 people were saved. Saved to what? You say, well, okay. Uh, Isn't that the church? Yeah. But you know when the first time they ever used that word? It was in Acts chapter 5. And they said it in such a way that it's like, okay, it's here. We didn't didn't mark it. We just noticed in Acts chapter 5 verse 11, a great fear came over the whole church. That's the first reference to it. Say, huh, isn't that curious? All right. And then in Acts chapter 8, there's a guy. Man, is he mad. His name is Saul. 
and he's going to persecute, guess who? The church. They were identified by that point. So he's going out. A great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they scattered to Judea and Samaria and other places. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Acts chapter 8 verse 3. So Saul began ravaging the church. By then it was understood. It existed. Up to that point, it didn't exist until Acts chapter 2. And suddenly it's part of the conversation. The church, the church, the church. And then chapter 9, I love this verse, 931. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, that's where everyone ran. Now it's the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed peace, listen carefully, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Guess who founded the church? He's all over Acts chapter 2. He's the one that changed all his lives. He's the one that formed the body. He's the one that's building it up. He's the one that's giving it comfort. It's the Holy Spirit. It's his story. It's what he has done. I could simply ask, who started it? The Holy Spirit. He's the one who did it. That's the work of God. Who maintains it? Who builds it? Who strengthens it? Who keeps it going on? Who gives it comfort? Who? The Holy Spirit. He sustains it. Who gives it the ability to function in a spiritual way? The Holy Spirit. You may say, but Pastor, this is so elementary. I know it. Where do spiritual gifts come from? Okay. Yeah. Is this, is this too much for us? Just asking. But it's so important to understand... Who is the one that gets the credit? Who is the one who started it? Who is the one at work in it? Who is the one who's doing all this? The Holy Spirit. And that's why when you put the column side by side, what do you see on the right column all the way down through it? Is that not God's fingerprints all over the church? In every single way. This is what's really cool. The one who created it, the one who activates it, the one who oversees it, is the same one. Our, most of our English translations here this morning use this, that word same. It's the same Spirit. It's the same Lord. It's the same God. That little word same is right there in the Greek, by the way. It's an intensive pronoun. Intensive. That means I should raise my voice when I say it, right? How do you say an intensive pronoun? It sounds pretty intense. It's to add emphasis to it. So you understand. This is the same spirit. I want to, I want to point this out to you. Because I could go through all the translations and what they've done with this and all this over the years. But I would just simply say since 1587, almost every single translation said the same word. Same. And what difference does that make is this. The Holy Spirit is the same regardless of what gift you have. There are varieties of gifts. But it's the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the same regardless of the ministry you have. Sometimes we rank them according to importance. 
He's the same regardless of what ministry you have. The Holy Spirit is the same regardless of the effects of your ministry. The gifts you have. The Holy Spirit is the same as the Lord. He is the same as God. It's the same Lord. The same God. You may say, but isn't this about the Trinity? It's just like the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son. Is that what they're trying to point out here? Well, let me ask you this. In Acts chapter 5, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Remember their names? You want them in your church? No? Well, they needed help, but they, were, they, they did something really wrong, didn't they? Let me start reading it to you. Acts 5, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And they kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it he laid it at the apostles' feet with the assumption, wove into this passage, Peter brings it up, is that they said, we're giving all of it to the Lord, and that was not true. They were only giving part of it to the Lord. And Peter looks at Ananias and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? But after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. He just called him the Holy Spirit in the first phrase, and now he's God in the second phrase. Then he goes on to say, And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down, breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. That's a great way to mess up a worship service. Just had somebody drop dead right there in the middle of it. It's like, whew. So the young men got up and covered him up and carried him out and they buried him. There was an elapse of an interval about three hours and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. She missed the funeral. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. In one context, the Holy Spirit is God, is the Lord. He's not assistant God. He is God. That's so important to understand when we're talking about this. And just a quick application of this. When it comes to the efficient functioning of the church, where should we start? We should start with the one who created it. We should go to the one who activates it, the one who oversees it, the one who sustains it, the one who guides it, the one who helps it, the one who matures it, the one who will eventually make sure we all get there. We start with him. It's the same spirit. It's the same Lord. It's the same God who works all things in all persons. If we're not aligned with him, there's no hope. You see it? There's nothing we can else do here. But for the functioning of the church, it needs to function the way it was created according to the one who created it. You know what I love about all that? He's here right now. He's in our midst. He's at work right now. And all I ask is that it bring him glory. That these things we understand and we say, we're aligned with him. We're going to function his way. That's where our hearts have to start. Before we go into column number one, let's make sure column number two is straight. This is God's church, not ours.
Let's do it His way. Heavenly Father, help us with this. It really does strike right into our hearts for so often. We set our own ambition in here. We, we do our own thing, our own gifts, our own pride steps in, and we start to focus on ourselves. May we not be that way, Lord. May we be very careful to first come to you, to acknowledge that none of this would exist apart from you. None of it could function apart from you. Teach us, Lord, over and over and over again that the church belongs to you. Our Savior bought it with his blood. He said, I will build my church. The Holy Spirit is present. He's the one who gifts and gives and provides. May we not be ignorant of these things, but may we walk according to your design, Lord. Teach us, please. Teach us as we go. And I know you're very gentle and merciful of that too, but we're persistent in our request. Lord, show us. Show us what it should look like that we might do it your way. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.